You may be seated. Thank you. And I believe at this time, children are uh, dismissed to children of worship through that door. I was right, they are. And we got a few takers. Good morning. Good morning. Okay. Um, well, this week, we are in our final week of our sermon series going through the book of Acts. So if this is your first week here, the good news is if you come back next week, you'll be on the front end of a sermon series. Uh, but we're wrapping up Acts today, and I just want to explain a little bit. So if you open your pew Bible later in the sermon, which I'll encourage you to do, you'll notice that we're in Acts chapter 17. It actually has 28 chapters. Uh, we don't have uh, the time right now to go through the entire book, but we're going to end on what I think is a really important chapter in that story. And really, the uh, the last uh, eight or so chapters are um, retelling Paul's story. He retells it in uh, legal deposition uh, several times in several courts in front of several people, uh, and is preparing his testimony to go before Caesar in Rome, which we don't get. All that to say... If you're a lawyer, you will love the last eight chapters of Acts. You will love how consistent his testimony is. For the rest of us, uh, we're going to look at Acts chapter 17. And this is a very famous passage. It's uh, You're not going to see the word in here, but the term Areopagus literally means Mars Hill. Now, some churchy people may have heard the phrase Mars Hill before. Raise your hand if you've heard of Mars Hill. Okay, so there are a few hands. For those of us who don't know, I will explain it as we go on. But it's really interesting. It's a pivotal chapter because there are both like really conservative theological schools and really liberal theological schools that both use the name Mars Hill. Everybody wants a piece of Mars Hill. And there are churches that are called Mars Hill. There is a Christian school in Cincinnati called Mars Hill. And so we have to stop and say, why is Mars Hill so important to Christians? And it's going to be really interesting, I promise. But where I want to start today is this all-too-common temptation for Christians. Many times, Christians will find themselves looking down on the culture around us, especially in America. We have American Christians uh, kind of scoffing at the culture in the world. And I think if you haven't seen this, if you just keep your radar up, you will see it in the next month because starting now we have, we're entering shopping season for Christmas. And so Christians will be going to the mall and on, at the mall you see this intersection of our culture, you know, what's popular, uh, what's trendy, what's, um, you know, what's out there. You'll see the intersection of different religions, different cultures, all of this. And it's very common for Christians to go, and and I I hate to be like this, but sometimes we sound, as Christians, a little thin-skinned. We'll come back from this, and we're like, can you believe how horrible the, the culture is, the mall? You know, to me, I don't like the mall, not because of all that stuff. I, it's like King's Island without the rides. It's just a bunch of people, and, uh, you know, I, it's overwhelming to me. Uh, but we see different value systems on display. We see things that conflict with us, maybe morally, religiously. And Christians are very prone to come home and tell everyone the horrors of what they experienced out in the secular world. And this is what I want to talk to us about today. This is the problem, is that we as Christians, as American Christians, are more likely to talk about the culture 
than we are to talk to the culture. We are more likely to talk about the culture than to the culture. And the problem with that is that if we want to reach people with God's love, we must demonstrate that love and respect before we share our faith. And that's what we're going to see this morning from Paul. So at this point in time, I would encourage you to open your pew Bible to page 926. And I am going to follow the pew Bible pretty closely. And I'm even going to point out a couple things to you on the printed uh, Bible that will not be on the screen or on your phone. Uh, so I would encourage you to open to page uh, 926 on your pew Bible or share it with your neighbor. Uh, and while you do that, I will open us in prayer. Father God, thank you for the gift of your word, for your servant Paul, we pray uh, that we would learn and study his example of what it means to share your love, your good news, and your gospel uh, with a world that is seemingly hostile toward it. We just pray that uh, you would use this text to shape our minds, shape our hearts, and that we would go forth as people who are ready to practice this love and put it in action. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Now, uh, Acts chapter 17, we're going to start in verse... 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, which is Mars Hill, by the way, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in a temple made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, I would encourage you to keep your Bible open at this point. And I just closed mine uh, accidentally. There we go. 
Because we're just going to go through and say, okay, that's a long story. That's a long reading. What just happened here? And then I've got three things that we should take from it. And what I want to call your attention to here, starting in verse 16, this is the very first thing we read. Paul's waiting for his friends to catch up in Athens. And it says this, his spirit was provoked within him. And some translations put it this way. It says, Paul was deeply distressed by what he saw around him. And so, let's pause for a second. Paul is standing in Athens. He's This is to Paul the remotest parts of the earth that we talked about in Acts chapter 1. Now for us, we know the gospel goes a lot further than Greece. But here these are uh, he's seeing idolatry, he's seeing statues, he's seeing uh, all of these things in the marketplace, hearing all of these philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And what he looks around, he feels just, and, and maybe you can even relate to this, where you've been somewhere and you feel provoked. You feel deeply distressed, just a gut reaction to what you're seeing. And you're like, I don't, I don't like that. That's not comfortable. But we want to look at what he does with that feeling. Because it, Luke, who, write, who wrote the book of Acts, is very careful to record his response. But then we follow his actions. And we're going to see something that most of us, I think, uh, wouldn't naturally transition to. So in, in verses 17 to 21, we see Paul reasoning with religious people and those in the marketplace every day. Now, it says he's reasoning. He's using intellect. He's trying to be persuasive through uh, the intellectual achievement, which is what the Greeks valued. Uh, many Greek philosophers uh, have a, a rich tradition in that way. And so he's using their own tools, and he must have done this fairly well because the philosophers are interested in what he has to say, and they invite him to speak at the Areopagus, which is Mars Hill, which was their court or high council on religion and philosophy. So that's the place where, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Socrates or Plato. This is where they stood. And Paul has been so persuasive, so convincing, that so interesting to them that they invite him to speak there and I have a, a helpful quote, I think, uh, from the uh, Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible about what the Areopagus was, and it says this. By Paul's day, the Council of the Areopagus was responsible for various political, educational, philosophical, and religious matters, as well as for legal proceedings. He spoke as an intelligent Christian believer who was able to meet the intellectual Athenians on their own ground. End quote. Now, we're going to talk about all of this later, but just imagine, I mean, how many Christians in a non-Christian society get to stand in the central place where education, philosophy, and religion is proclaimed and, deb- and discussed and debated? This is an incredible position, but it's, Paul didn't end up here on accident. And so, <clears throat> starting in verses 22 and 23, we see the beginning of his sermon. And he opens his sermon in an interesting way, especially when you can remember that in verse 16, he's provoked. He's deeply distressed by what he has seen as he looks around. But he says this, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, what's he doing? He's showing them honor and he's showing them respect. He's saying, you guys like religion. That much is clear. You've got all these idols, all these statues everywhere. And so he's going he's gonna to use that as best he can. And he opens his sermon that way and tries to appeal to their common ground. And in 24 through 31, he then shows 
uh, that he has strived to understand what they believe and he ties his message into what they already believe. Now, he doesn't compromise the good news of Jesus Christ, but he uses as much language from them as possible. And you'll even see this. And you'll, you'll even see that there's a specific angle to the language that he's using in his sermon. And one commentator summed it up like this. Now, Epicureans, followers of Epicurus, were uh, philosophers, and it mentions them in this passage. And this commentator says this, Epicureans were thoroughgoing materialists, believing that everything came from atoms and particles of matter, that there was no life beyond this, and that all of humanity, all of humanity was returned to matter at death. And though the Epicureans did not deny the existence of gods, they saw them as totally indifferent to humanity. End quote. Now, does that sound familiar to anyone here? People who do not believe in the spiritual realm, they only believe in the material, spiritual, scientific side of reality. That's not new. This book is 2,000 years old, and Paul is addressing that audience. People of that persuasion have always existed, but Paul doesn't open by mocking them. And he doesn't go behind closed doors and talk to other Christians about how terrible they are. Instead, he appeals to them, and he says, you know, God is not actually far off in verse 27. He says, you know, you may believe that gods are out there doing something or, you know, rather, but doesn't care about humanity. And he tries to show them they actually, God of the Bible does care. And then the conclusion, verses 32 to 34, Paul gets mocked by some, yet others are ready to hear more from him. And still a third group have already believed what he has said to them. And so, We're going to take three things from this. And these are three things. If you're a note taker, this is where you start taking notes. Lesson number one is if you want to reach people with the love of God, you need to become a student of the culture. Now, that's not not something you hear in church very often, but you need to become a student of the culture, not not the church culture, but the culture out there, the secular culture. And you see Paul in this passage, applying his own teaching. If, you, if you've read another letter by him, it's called Philippians. And at the end of Philippians, he says this, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. So if there's anything that's true, anything that's good, anything commendable at all, dwell on that. Now, Christians are not historically great at that, especially when it comes to secular culture. But we see Paul putting it into practice here. As he's looking at pagan idols, he's thinking to himself, what here is commendable? What here is lovely? What here is just? What here is good? What can I possibly value in these in this, this culture's belief system? And so what we see here is that Paul is a masterful student of culture. Now, student does not mean that you become a blind follower of the culture because that's not what we see Paul doing. Instead, we see Paul, he seeks to understand and then he wants to learn from the best of what that culture has to offer. And this isn't an isolated event. This is happening throughout the book of Acts, but I think it's most vivid in this passage. And so he is willing to learn and there's a sense in which as a Christian, we can recognize that everyone has something to teach us if we are willing to learn. In fact, there's a popular scientist out there who's not a Christian, and he says this, uh, famous for saying it, every one of everyone you will ever meet knows something that you don't. 
Everyone you ever meet knows something that you don't. And if you go with that attitude, you'll find it easier to find something true, something commendable, something good, something lovely, something perhaps just uh, in each interaction with each person. But Paul's mastery of you know being a student of culture continues. As he goes into his sermon, he quotes two of the Greeks' own writers, and he ties it into his sermon. Now, they might be familiar to you. Some of these quotes are so ingrained in Christianity, we have them written into hymns and songs, and they're actually Paul quoting from pagans. And if you notice, in your printed Bible, and this is why I point this out, they're indented. They stand out from the rest of the text in verse 28. The first one is this, In him we live and move and have our being. And you'll notice that there's a little number one next to that, and if you follow that all the way to the bottom of the page, it says who Paul is quoting there. And guess what? They're not a Christian. And then, the next line, for we indeed are his offspring. It's specifically from a Greek poem. But what Paul is doing here is he's listening, he's listening to their songs, he's listening to their poetry, he's observing their culture, and he's saying, we agree on that line, we agree on that line, and let me show you it in its best form, which is Jesus. In him we live and move and have our being. That's a great idea. I like that you guys have that. And it's so true. If you want to see how true it is, look at the God of the Bible. And so he's actually pointing to God's goodness, not by belittling the culture, because guess what? God doesn't actually need an assist in that department. He doesn't need you to belittle and besmudge other people to make him look good. God is good in and of his own accord. And so we don't have to slander other people to make him look good. And then, perhaps the most surprising thing, which I think some pastors would get in a lot of trouble if they did this, he actually references an idol that they have, a statue that they made to bow down and worship. He pulls that into a sermon too. He's like, you guys have this idol to an unknown God. And he's like, I like the idea that you know that there's something out there besides what you know, so let me tell you about that. So everything that he can pick up, everything he can learn, he's going to spin it around and point it to Jesus. And he does what I think most of us would be completely incapable of doing. He opens a sermon by saying, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, remember, verse 16, he is deeply distressed by what he says. He is provoked in his spirit. He has this negative gut reaction to everything that he is seeing. And when he opens his mouth, he praises them for their religious devotion. Now, the question for you is this. What ways would you be able to share your faith with others if you took the time to be a student of their culture, of our culture in America? If you knew what people loved and why they loved it, wouldn't it be easier to show them the even greater love of Jesus? Now, I mean, the easiest example for me, so I've, uh, before this job, I did youth ministry for a number of years, and uh, there's this uh, little subculture thing, you may have heard of it, called Marvel Cinematic Universe. Maybe a couple of you have heard of it, based, two based on the laughter. Um, and every time one of these movies came out, Especially in the early days, Christians would kind of react and they're like, you know, that has this element in it and this element. And I was like, actually, what I'm seeing every time they make a movie is this uh, heroic character sacrificing himself to save a group of people. And if you can't connect someone's love of that story to the gospel, you just need to open your eyes. 
That's the term we use in, in theology is vicarious redemption. When someone acts on someone else's behalf to save a group of people, and that is at the center of all of these stories that we spend all this time watching and listening to and loving and celebrating in fandom, and it's right there. People already love the gospel, they just don't even know it yet. Because they will pay millions of dollars to watch these movies. I pay. I saw Endgame three times. Um, it's three hours. That's a long sit. So I love these stories. And the reason I love them is that they remind me of the story of Jesus. And, you know, and that's, you can go through literature. In fact, there's a really great book called Echoes of Eden. It's by Jerem Bars, uh, who it was a seminary professor of mine. And he goes through literature and he says, you know, starting with Shakespeare and Jane Austen all the way to J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter. And he says, this is how you see the gospel story unfolding out of each one of these uh, iconic figures in literature. It's a great book, highly recommended, and it's really great for being conversant with the culture. And what you realize at the end of that book is that now he, you watched him do that and pull the gospel story out of cultural narrative so many times that now you start to think like that. And you can start to see it in whatever people love and... Um, so that's just a really great way to become a student of culture. It's not not to just look at things to criticize, but instead say, what are the things we can celebrate? What are the things where you're actually celebrating a portion of the story and how the real story is even better than that? So you don't have to badmouth culture in order to do that. So the first lesson is that. Become a student of culture. The second lesson that I think we need to take from Paul is this. We need to learn how to talk to the culture instead of talking about the culture. Now I kind of reference this when I open, but and, and Paul is deeply provoked by what he by what he sees in the Greek culture. But the question is, what does he do with that gut feeling? In fact, that's almost validating for me. If I walk into somewhere else in the culture and I see something that really disturbs me and distresses me, and a lot of us would think, okay. I just can't be in this place. I can't reach these people. That's not what we see. Paul is deeply distressed, but it doesn't stop there. He doesn't, he gets past that feeling and starts to say this. Now, many of us are ready at the slightest offense to jump on Facebook or Twitter or the original Facebook, which is church small groups, and we're willing to get in there and vent about how terrible the world is and how holy we are for noticing how terrible the world is. And my question for you is, what good does that do anyone? Does it help the culture out there for you to stop interacting with the culture and come back into your Christian huddle and just badmouth the culture? Does the culture hear any of that? Does it help them at all? Does it help you? Is it good for Christians to engage with each other that way? No, because if anything, you'll start getting this false sense of holiness. You'll feel like, I'm so moral, I'm so special, I'm so good, I'm so set apart from the world and the culture. And guess what? When you do that, you forget that the only reason you're set apart is because Jesus has paid your debt. Jesus is the one who presents you holy and blameless before God, not your morality, not your good behavior, but Jesus. And so talking like that, about the culture, behind the culture's back, doesn't do them any good. It doesn't do you any good. And it doesn't do any good for the Christians around you. Yet, that is the most common practice that I see in the American church. 
And by contrast, we see Paul distressed by these things, and he turns around and speaks directly to the culture. Now, some people in our age try to speak to the culture, but they're really just speaking about the culture in front of the culture. And what I mean by that is every time I go to a Reds game and I see a a well-intentioned person with a megaphone yelling at people, uh, berating them with scripture verses and proofs, trying to persuade them of the gospel, I'm like, and they're talking about how sinful everyone is and how they need to repent. I'm like, you're still talking about the culture. You just happen to be doing it in front of the culture. You're still not speaking to the culture. You're not interacting with the culture. And there is a difference there. Because speaking with someone rather than at them means you have to know something about them. Speaking to someone with the intention of being heard requires a mutual respect and a mutual sense of interest in that I'm learning from you as we're conversing and now I'm adjusting what I say in light of what I know about you. Now, when I was thinking of this, about this idea of speaking uh, kind of at someone rather than to them, the first thing that popped to mind was the last time I went to the BMV. Uh, the employee there was not very helpful to me. And then my wife was like, actually, this week, she went to the bank because she's getting ready to go to China for uh, a couple weeks as part of her grad program. And she needed Chinese yuan. She needed to convert her dollars to Chinese yuan. And so she asked, can I change my money into Chinese yuan? And the bank teller said, yes, we have Japanese yen. And she said, that's great, but I need Chinese yuan. And he, she said, yeah, we have Japanese yen. And my wife was like, can you hear what I'm saying? I mean, we're saying different countries, and even though it's only vowels, they are different words. And this frustrating feeling of someone not really paying attention to you, but just kind of talking over you, that is how people in the culture fear, feel about Christians much of the time. We are totally tone deaf to the needs of people around us, to what draws them, what motivates them, what they love, what they are passionate about, and we just ignore all of that and just say the same thing to the same people all the time. And you feel uh, tone deaf in a sense. And as Christians, we owe this level of respect to everyone. Everyone. Paul knew this, and he knew that people do not need to earn this respect from you because it is given to them by God. And so when we respect people, we are only doing the bare minimum of what God requires of us. And there's this great analogy from one of my favorite Christian writers from the 20th century named G.K. Chesterton. And he uses the analogy of a penny. And he says, now if you get two pennies and one of them is brand new from the bank. It's clearly, you're the first person to ever have it. It's shiny and it's crisp and it's new. And it says 2019. And you get this other penny that's uh, 30 years old and it looks like it's been in the bottom of a sewer and it's all scratched up and kind of smells bad and it's you know covered in dirt and filth. Which one of those is worth more? No, well, maybe, but more than likely they are worth the same, assuming we don't have any corn collectors here. And guess what? Their value is not based on how clean or dirty or scuffed up or flawless they are. Their value comes from the image that is stamped on the front of it. And so as Christians, we believe that everyone was made in the image of God. Meaning every time you look at another human being, you should be reminded of God. 
You should be able to see God's image. They are made in God's likeness. They bear God's image and they are worthy of your respect and your love on that grounds alone, regardless of their behavior, regardless of how they treat you. And this is the interesting thing. Respect is the most valuable currency you can possibly issue and it costs you nothing. It costs you nothing to be respectful of other people and it goes further than anything. Now, some of you will be hearing this from the other way around and you'll be thinking of all the ways that people need to be respecting you. Don't go there yet. Sure, that's true. Like you need, you deserve to be respected. You're made in God's image as well. But what I'm, stop worrying about the respect that you are owed and start worrying about the respect that you owe others based on their image bearing of God. Because at the end of the day, as a Christian, you have been shown respect, honor, and love by God by through his son, Jesus Christ, dying for your sins. Even though you were rebellion against God, you are paid for, you are made holy and blameless before God, and there is no greater respect that God could possibly pay you. You've been paid that. You have that in your back pocket all along. So now you are free to go pay respect to everyone in every culture and every subculture. And so the question of this is this, how many of you find yourself deeply distressed, provoked, disgusted, turned off, embarrassed for or by someone else on a weekly basis? I would imagine, I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, even though I started to say that the impulse happened. Most of us experience that, if not a weekly basis, then maybe a monthly basis or sometimes an hourly basis. But when that happens to you this coming week, this coming month, I want you to pause in that moment where you just feel the sense of, I want to reject this person, this thing. I want you to pause there and ask yourself this. How can I see God's image in this person? <clears throat> Once you've done that, I want you to ask yourself, what would it take for me to show that person respect? And then here's the most important part. I want you to do it. After you figure out how to see them as an image bearer of God, which isn't hard because everyone is, Say, what would it look like for me to show respect, to show honor, to show love to this person? And then, instead of just figuring it out and thinking about it and having a nice thought, actually do it. Pay them that respect and see see where it goes. And so that's the second point we take from Paul is talk to the culture rather than about the culture. And the final point that I want to draw out of Paul this morning is this, and this is the shortest one, is that the least likely are often the most likely. Now, if you read this story in Acts 17, from the beginning to the end, you'll see at the beginning of the chapter, Paul enters a synagogue and he first preaches to the Jews. Now, you would think, after reading the entire Bible and getting to the book of Acts, that the the Jews are much more likely to accept Jesus than the Greeks because they already believe in the God of the Bible. They believe in the thing. They agree on morality. They believe in one God. They share all of this common ground, yet they do not come to faith. And the Greeks who are worshiping idols that they don't even have names for come to faith in Jesus. And so here's, here, I don't like to say it this way. Actually, I, I really like saying it this way, but I shouldn't. You, and by you, I also mean me, are more than likely a terrible judge of who is likely to believe the good news of Jesus. You just don't know. You don't have a crystal ball, and if you do, if you do, it doesn't work. But you have no idea who will and won't hear the good news of Jesus Christ, and so it's not up to you to decide who gets to hear it. You're called to faithfulness. 
And there's a new book out from a, a New York Times bestselling author named Malcolm Gladwell, uh, who's written uh, a host of bestselling books. His new book is called Talking to Strangers. And he's trying to figure out in this book why why so many communication problems happen across cultural barriers, positional authority barriers, all of these other things. And I'm only about halfway through it, but so far he has pulled a lot of scientific data that tells us basically this. Even when we think we're good at it, most of us are really bad at reading people. We're really bad at reading people. We think we're good at it and we think, you know, if I preach to that person, they're going to become a Christian. If I preach, they, they'll never believe, so I'm just going to go invest. You don't know. You don't know, you can't know. And here's the more important part, is that salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's ultimately not even up to you. Uh, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't depend on your skill, your articulation, how witty and persuasive and funny you are. The only variable is your faithfulness. Will you go and share your faith? And the rest is on God. And so as we wrap up this morning, I want to share with you a quote. It's a longer quote, but it's a story from a book called The Heart of Evangelism. It's from Jerem Bars, who I already referenced earlier in the sermon. It's a seminary professor of mine, and he tells a story about this man who's a self-titled evangelist, and he went to college campuses to speak to Muslims. And the story is this. He, he frequently goes to these colleges, but his intention is to attack Islam as blasphemous and utterly false. He is so aggressive in his approach that frequently he has to be escorted from the university by campus police to prevent a riot for his own safety. He seems to regard this as a triumph for the gospel and as proof that he is honoring Christ and being persecuted for his faithfulness. Jerem says this, I have no desire to impugn his motives, his love for the Lord, or his zeal for evangelism. Yet, when Paul's preaching resulted in a riot, even an unbeliever could acknowledge that he had not uttered any blasphemy against uh, Diana or dishonored her worshipers, uh, her or her worshipers. His words to them about religious... Uh, their religion was respectful and gracious. This is the same pattern of behavior we see throughout the book of Acts, end quote. And if you don't believe him, you can keep reading on your own. In Acts chapter 19, sure enough, there is a riot against Paul in Ephesus, and the people are ready to take him out of town, and the leader of Ephesus, not a Christian, comes to Paul's defense and says, he hasn't said anything offensive to you. Now, how many Christian evangelists can go into a hostile and secular culture and preach faithfully the gospel and have unbelievers rush to your defense when people attack you? That's the manner in which Paul is doing this. And guess what? It should also remind you of the manner in which Jesus taught. Jesus at his his own corrupt trial said, had a said of him, I see no fault with this man. And so he is still, he's, and it doesn't mean he's compromising his message. Paul is preaching Jesus. People are coming to faith, but he is doing it without intentionally and aggressively offending them, without hurting people for the sake of it. He is showing them honor and respect. And if we want to share the good news with the world, we need to take seriously the behavior and the witness of the early church. Will you please join me in prayer?